Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, beloved. It is a joy to be able to be with you, even if it's from afar through the medium of video. Uh, First and foremost, I want to say I miss you, I love you. It is sad for me and my family and for the rest of the staff and I'm sure for the rest of the congregation to know that we're meeting from afar, but in God's providence, this is where he has us. There is a very real sense in which we are separated yet together. We're unified in the spirit. So this morning, we're going to continue on with our study in the book of Genesis, and we're going to do that through the way of video, and we're going to continue to do it by way of video until we are able to gather together again. So again, there is this level of longing that I have to be with you, and I'm sure that you have to be with the rest of our congregation. So I pray that even though we're meeting from afar, we would genuinely feel the unity of the Spirit, that we would genuinely feel the unity we have in Christ, even when we're not gathered together So that's my hope for us this morning as we approach the Lord in his word. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be edified through the study of his word. A couple things that are kind of unique to me this morning, and they'll be unique to you as well. I, I do not have a manuscript this morning, which is very odd for me. It's very odd to be bringing the word for you without a manuscript before me. So I pray that you would be gracious to me. And I pray that you would even now be asking the Lord to be kind to us as we work through his word together. So just to kind of give a little bit of background, kind of where we've been and where we'll be going this morning, throughout our study in the book of Genesis thus far, we've seen in chapter 1 how God is the sovereign creator of all things, how he alone is able to create by his word, by his word of fiat, he speaks and creation comes into existence. Chapter two, we saw how God is the creator of mankind. Chapter two focuses in on the creation of Adam and then the building of Eve from the rib of Adam. Chapter 2 culminates in the bringing of this man and this woman together in the covenant of marriage, which when we were in that section of the book of Genesis, we saw how it pointed forward, right, to the relationship that God has with us through Christ, our bridegroom, as we are his bride. Chapter 3 reminds us why things are the way they are. Why is there brokenness in the world? Why are we at enmity with one another? Why do we look around and chaos seems to be ruling the day? It's because of the fall. It's because of sin in the world. But on the heels of sin entering into the world, we're reminded of God's good purpose in grace to both his people and creation at large. If we were to remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That first gospel promise we have. And then what comes afterwards, if you remember, are the effects of the curse upon the woman and the man. These are indirect effects to the woman and the man, 
to Eve and to Adam. Eve will have pain and childbearing. In pain she shall bring forth children. Her desire will be for her husband and he shall rule over her. And to Adam the effects of the curse. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. He will work hard for what the ground produces and he will die. When Eve took of the fruit and ate and gave to Adam who was with her, when they both ate of the fruit, they both died spiritually. And then the effects of that spiritual death will take place in their physical death as well. But we're reminded of God's kindness before we end chapter three, right? We're reminded in verse 20 that Adam called his wife Hava. He called her Eve. She was the mother of all the living And then we're reminded that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That is such a kind and sweet mercy of our God to his people. But even in his mercy, his judgment is seen as he sends Adam and Eve east of the Garden of Eden. East of Eden was the title of last week's sermon The title of this week's sermon could very well be called Life Lived East of Eden, but I've since retitled this morning's message, The Tale of Two Seeds. It's The Tale of Two Seeds. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Chapter 4, the book of Genesis, we're going to be working from verse 1 through verse 16. So We're going to read God's word, we're going to study God's word, and we are going to love God's word this morning together. So again, being from a distance, it's slightly different, but I would invite you this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, to stand with me as we read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and hope giving word. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is so good to read your word, to study your word, to be sharpened by your word, to be transformed by your word, to be pressed by your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning your word would have its full effect on our hearts such that we would be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus, which is our greatest good in this life. And Lord, I pray that even in this season, your word would speak a better word of hope than any words of hope we might actually give because we know that your word is a word spoken to us from you. So Father, I pray, I pray that we would love your word this morning, that we would rejoice in your word this morning, and I pray that Christ would be magnified and your saints would be edified through your word, by your spirit, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So again, we've already, we've already walked through where we've come from, right? But I do want to draw our attention again to the end of chapter 3. The end of chapter 3, verse 24. He, that is the Lord, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God removes Adam and Eve from the garden and he places them east of the garden. They're still in Eden at this time, but they are placed outside of the garden. This is God's mercy upon his people. Now imagine you are the people of Israel at this time. Imagine you are the people of Israel at this time and you're wandering around in the wilderness. You're east of the promised land. And you're realizing, why? Why is it that things are the way they are? Why is it that we are wandering? Why is it that we've been in Egypt? We've been brought out of Egypt through the Exodus, and now we're wandering in the wilderness. Well, Moses will remind them it was because of their hardness of heart, their stubbornness of heart. They were a stiff-necked people, and they were disobedient to the Lord. But they're wandering east of the promised land. They will be traveling west, yes, but for a season they will be east of the promised land. And then they're reminded too, as the tabernacle is with them, that to be east of the presence of the Lord is to be outside of his presence, right? Because if, if, if the priests are to minister in the holy place, and the high priest in the holy of holies, but that but once a year, he has to move from west to east. He has to return to the presence of the Lord. And if you remember throughout the Torah, the way that the, the veils are described, they have cherubim woven in to them, which is a picture 
of returning back to the presence of the Lord. Well, here we're east of the Garden of Eden. That's where we are. And we looked previously as well at how well Moses has constructed this story, how beautiful it is, right? In chapter one, we looked at how the sovereign title, Elohim, is used 35 times in chapter one in the description of the creation account, how the Lord was forming the earth 21 times, how the Lord said or he spoke 10 times. We're reminded that there was evening and morning, the first day, a second day, A third day, we're told that it's good, those days are seven times. And then we're reminded as well of the height of creation week, the sixth day when the Lord had formed man and woman. There's beauty woven into the tapestry of the story that Moses is telling. And I hope that as we were reading through, you saw the beauty of the story here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Did you notice that the word Abel pops up seven times? His title, the descriptor of Abel, he's a brother, seven times. Cain is talked about, he's mentioned, 14 times. Did you notice the flow of the narrative? We've got the conception of Cain and then the conception of Abel. And then Abel being a keeper of the sheep, and Cain being a worker of the ground, and then Cain bringing to the Lord an offering, and Abel brought an offering. There's this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's a beautiful story. It's woven beautifully by Moses as he writes it down for us. I want us to see, too, in this section that there really is two basic sections to this passage of Scripture. Verses 1 through 5a is the account of two seeds. Verses 1 through 5a, the account of two seeds. And then in verses 5b through 16, we're told of the acts of Cain and the responses of the Lord. So really that's how this narrative can be Structured verses 1 through 5a, the accounts of two seeds. Verses 5b through 16, the acts of Cain and the responses of the Lord. That's how we're going to be approaching this text. So let's look first at verses 1 through 5a. Verses 1 and 2, they really describe for us the origin of the two brothers. Right Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, this is verse 1, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So there we have this picture of the origins of the two brothers. We're also told in verse 2 their vocations. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. But let's look first at their origins. Eve bears a son, and she names him Cain. The reason she named him Cain is because she's gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The Hebrew word Cain, Cain, sounds very much like the Hebrew word forget or acquire, kana. You can even hear the similarities there. 
So she names him Cain. And it would seem from the text that Eve is actually seeing here, maybe, just maybe, this is the one who's going to be the answer to Genesis 3.15, who's going to be the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and restore what has been broken. It would seem as though that's Eve's perception of the firstborn. And what's interesting here is also the naming of Abel. If you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the words that'll pop up over and over and over and over again, you can't miss it, is the thought of vanity, meaningless, fleeting. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Could very well be translated enigmatic, mysterious. Hevel is the same background here. It's the same Hebrew word for Abel's name, which kind of foreshadows this reality that there is a seemingly random brokenness of our world in the brief account of the life of Abel. So we've got Cain and we've got Abel, two sons, and one was a keeper of sheep and the other a worker of the ground. And one thing we have to keep in mind here is not that one of those vocations is inherently superior than the other. Both vocations were meant to be a means by which they were to offer up sacrifices unto the Lord. Some have argued that Abel's vocation was superior because he was tending the flocks and Cain's vocation was inferior because he was working the ground. That doesn't seem to be the case from the text. Adam himself was called to work and keep the garden, the ground. So it wouldn't seem as though there's anything inferior in the vocation itself. The reality is that vocation was to be a means by which these two were to offer up sacrifices unto the Lord. And the same is true for us today, brothers and sisters, in that whatever occupation we are engaged in, right, because we're still fulfilling the creation mandate that God gave to humanity, whatever vocation we are engaged in, we are to work at it as unto the Lord. So both cardiologists and carpenters, surgeons and school teachers, pastors, plumbers, mechanics, mothers, dentists, and dads. We are to do all of those things for the glory of God, and hear this, for the good of our neighbor as an act of worship unto our great God through Christ by the Spirit. There is no inherent superiority in any vocation. We are to do all vocations as unto the Lord. There is no meaningless vocation in the kingdom of God. And I hope you hear me say that loud and clear. Whatever vocation you are engaged in, do so as unto the Lord. It is immensely valuable. Immensely valuable. And that goes for any vocation. Any vocation. Working as unto the Lord. So... We have the origin of the two brothers. We have their vocations laid out before us. And then in verses 3 through 5a, we have the offerings of the two brothers. 
The offerings of the two brothers. Let's look again at those verses. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Let's stop there just for a second. Just for a second. Cain and Abel brought offerings that were consistent with their vocations. So again, there's nothing inherently inferior about either one of those vocations. Or, for that matter, anything superior about either one of those vocations. They were meant to be a means by which the brothers would offer up a sacrifice unto the Lord. What's interesting here, though, is the description of the offerings. Right? It says that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and immediately we're thinking, so what's wrong with that? But it's, but it's in the way that Abel's offering is described that we hear the lack of Cain's offering. Because Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock, the best of the best, the fat portions. So what seems to be lacking in Cain's offering is the fact that it was of the first fruits, the best of the best. It's interesting that Moses tells us some about Cain's offering, but then gives so much more description as it relates to Abel's offering. Now notice too in the text that it says the Lord looked upon Cain and his offering with disfavor, but upon Abel and his offering with favor, both upon the individual and the offering itself. So One of the questions that naturally arises from this section of the text is, why is it? Why is it that the Lord looked upon Abel and his offering with favor, but not so Cain and his offering? Well, we've already looked at some of the hints in the text, right? It doesn't seem as though Cain is offering up his offering by faith. He's not offering up the first fruits, the best of the best. He doesn't have a proper reverence, a proper fear, a proper love for God. It seems as though he's going through the motions. But is that really the case? And I think it is because the New Testament paints for us the very same picture. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, specifically verse 4 here. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the thought there is, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he offered it up by faith, where Cain did not. And then if we go even further... To 1 John chapter 3, we read in verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Why, Why is it that John would call Cain's deeds evil? Well, I think because they were offered up apart from faith and Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14 that anything that that does not come from faith is evil sin. So Cain and his offering were not looked upon with favor because they were not offered from a heart position of faith and trust in the one who calls for offerings. So we have there the offerings of Abel and the offering of Cain. Abel's being received, Cain's not. And the effect is enmity. 
between these two brothers. Enmity arises between these two brothers, which is exactly what the Lord said would happen between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? The Lord himself will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. This is Genesis 3.15. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We've already read in 1 John chapter 3, That Cain himself was of the evil one, the evil one who was sinning from the beginning and was a murderer from the beginning. So we have a picture of these two brothers, these two seeds as it were, seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, now at enmity. So that's the account of the two seeds. That's the origin of the two brothers and the offerings of the two brothers. It prepares us for what comes here in the latter half of this passage of Scripture, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, which really begin the second half in chapter 4, verses 5b through 16, the acts of Cain and the responses of the Lord. So let's look first, verses 5b through verse 7. The anger of Cain and the warning of the Lord. The anger of Cain and the warning of the Lord. Verses 5b through verse 7. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Literally his countenance fell. He turned in on himself. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Literally, will your face not be lifted up? Will your countenance not arise? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. I want to back up just for a second. Isn't it wonderful how Cain and Abel actually knew what they were supposed to do? Do you ever think about that? They're both offering up their sacrifices. How did they know to do that? It's because Adam and Eve taught them what they were supposed to do. They taught them what they were supposed to do. And brothers and sisters, right now, if you've got kids in the home, and I'm sure you do, (laughs) if you have children, they're in the home in this season, we have got a captive audience, and we can teach them what it means to worship the Lord. We can teach them what it means to come before the Lord and offer up our whole lives as acts of worship. You have a captive audience. Teach them what it means to worship our great God. Demonstrate for them what it means to worship our great God, especially in seasons of uncertainty, sadness, brokenness around us. God is still good and he is still king of the universe. Teach your children what it means to worship the Lord. Now, back to the anger of Cain and the warning of the Lord. Rather than repenting, anger arises in Cain's heart. We see that, right? Verse 5b. Cain was very angry. His face fell. He became inward focused. But that warning, that warning from the Lord was meant to be a a merciful means to produce repentance in the heart of Cain. So when the Lord warns Cain of the prowess of sin, that's meant to cause Cain to return to the Lord in repentance. His warning is meant to be a mercy. It's meant to be a grace that would produce repentance in the heart of Cain. The Lord warns Cain of sin's prowess, of its power, as it's waiting to strike If you will do not do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting for you. It's waiting to pounce. It's desire. It wants to rule over you. 
It doesn't just have a desire like, ooh, I like you, Cain. It has a desire to rule over Cain, to master him. That's why he must rule over it. And do you notice the way that this crouching prowess of sin is matched by the work of the devil in the New Testament? First Peter chapter 5. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8. Sin is a powerful foe, but God's grace is greater still. And his grace is shown in this warning. His mercy is shown in this warning, but Cain remains unrepentant. Now I want us to see two things here with the warning of the the Lord, to Cain about the, pro- the power and the prowess of sin. One, just note sin's fierceness. It is not something to be played around with, brothers and sisters. Flee from sin. It is not something to be played around with. Its desire is for you and it will consume you. Oh, there's, I'm sure, so many ways in which we have given in to sin and temptation over the last several weeks. May God be gracious to us. May he be gracious to us as we turn from those sins and as we display the glory of God and living out the gospel of Christ in this season. But also take note of the joy that comes with obedience. The psalmists knew this. The psalmists knew that joy comes with obedience. It's an obedience that flows from faith. Yes, faith is the root, obedience is the fruit, but there is joy, right? Did you catch it? Verse seven, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Will your face not be lifted up? Will you not be joyful? God has given us his command so that we might have joy. So that we might have joy and have it to the full. The Lord's warnings are a kind mercy. But Cain's heart is hard. In verses eight through 12, we see the murderous act of Cain and the judgment of the Lord. Sin has birthed murder in Cain's life. Let's look here, verses eight through 12. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth." Isn't it interesting as we read through the account here in Genesis that the first account of death in a post-fall world, we know death's coming. It's not owing to a natural death. It's owing to murder. It's owing to murder. The first account of physical death in a post-fall world is the result of murder. So in verse 8, it's interesting, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. It almost seems as though he's tempting him to come out to the field with him. And when they were there, he rose up against his brother and he killed him. There's some interesting parallels. We don't have enough time this morning to go through them all. But if if you were to go through and read through Genesis chapter 3, as the serpent is tempting Eve and as Eve takes of the fruit and she eats of it and gives some to her husband Adam who's with her. And then the Lord coming to them and asking them, Adam, where are you? And then there's this blame shifting game going on. This denial of what's actually taken place. There's so many unique parables here in the life of Cain. 
Which makes me wonder, as a dad, am I giving an example to my boys that they would, that they would follow and honor the Lord? Or am I giving an example that they would end up falling in the footsteps as we see here in Genesis 3 and 4? So the Lord comes to Cain. He says, where is your brother? Where is your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Outright lie, right? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is an assumed yes. Yes, Cain, you are. You are your brother's keeper. That word keeper is the same word that's used to describe Adam's work in the garden. He was to work and to keep. He was to guard and to protect. So this very well could be translated, am I my brother's protector? And as the firstborn, the answer is yes. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's protector, but you have become your brother's murderer. Am I my brother's protector? Yes. Cain, yes. And again, in 1 John chapter 3, we're reminded that as a family of God, we also are, in a sense, protectors of one another. We are to love one another. We are not to follow in the footsteps of Cain, who was a murderer, John would tell us that if we lack love for the brethren, we're actually following in the footsteps of Cain. Jude chapter 11 calls it the way of Cain. Now, in all of this, we see Cain's disregard for both God and his neighbor, right? He is not loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he is surely not loving his neighbor as himself, Again, as we mentioned, Cain's behavior is picked up in the New Testament. It's directly applied to our love or our hatred of the family of God. And brothers and sisters, can I just encourage you this week, love the body even if you have to do so from afar. Pick up one of our church directories. Make some phone calls this week. Just check in on one another. Love one another well. If you have the means to help a brother or sister, by either just going and picking up groceries or sitting on the phone with them for 20 minutes. Oh, do so. Demonstrate love from afar. Understand that the answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's protector? The assumed answer is yes. And in the family of God, we must be about the work of loving the brethren, which also includes seeking to do all we can to protect one another. So Cain disregarded both his God and his neighbor. And as a result, the Lord directly curses Cain. There is a direct curse upon Cain. Now, back in Genesis chapter 3, it was the serpent that was directly cursed, while Adam and Eve felt the indirect effects of the curse. But here, Cain himself is actually cursed. Look again, verses 11 and 12. This is the Lord speaking. And now you are cursed Cain from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain is directly cursed, which produces a cry in Cain's heart that is not a cry of repentance, but a cry of remorse for the judgment that has befallen him. Verses 13 through 16, we see the cry of Cain. 
verses 13 and 14 specifically, is, is Cain's decrying of, of the punishment that he received. Let's look at that, verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground. So he's, his concern is he's no longer going to be able to uh, produce from the ground. You've driven me away from the ground. And not only that, but you, you have made me a wanderer and a fugitive in the earth. A wanderer and a fugitive in the earth. That's a curse directly upon Cain. And Cain is crying out that his punishment is too much for him to bear. Too much for him to bear. One might think in verse 14, Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. That, that oh, he's concerning, his concern is about being before the Lord. No, he wants the favor of the Lord without the Lord himself, which is a, a challenge to us today. We want the favor of God, but we don't want the God of favor. We must desire the giver of all good gifts while we enjoy his good gifts all the more. God is the greatest gift in all the universe, and all of his blessings are just icing on the cake as it were. So Cain decries the punishment he receives, and then we see God acting in mercy in verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, because Cain's afraid that he's gonna be killed, here we have the first murderer being afraid that somebody else is going to murder him, take his life. The Lord says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, which will be picked back up in Lamech's song. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we see here the mercy of God. He's protecting Cain. Even though Cain is unrepentant of the sin that he committed, God is still showing mercy to the unrepentant. He did so today by causing the sun to rise on so many people who are refusing his kindness and spurning his name. God is kind to sinners and he is merciful to those who deserve his justice. So if you're watching this morning, it's the afternoon, if, the, if it's the evening and you haven't responded to Christ by, by faith, if you haven't fled to him as the hope of your salvation, today's the day of salvation. God has been merciful to you. He's been merciful to you. And the gospel that Christ came into the world to save sinners through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his current exaltation and intercession on our behalf. That is good news. It's good news for you if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. God acts in mercy. We saw the mark of the Lord on Cain. It's probably here a type of the Lord's merciful mark. We see in Ezekiel chapter 9. That kind of mark is picked up in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of discussion as to what this mark is. Is it a tattoo? Is it a hairstyle? Is it a city? The fact of the matter is nobody really knows. Nobody really knows what this mark actually is. Either way, Cain knows about it, and it's obvious to those around him that Cain has been marked. Some have argued that it was a dog that kind of followed along by Cain. Who knows? But we do know that it was a mark that was placed on Cain that was observable to those around him. 
It was a mark of God's protection. Now notice the way that this section ends. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which actually just means wanderer. So the one who's a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth settles in the land of wanderings. Where is that, though? It's east of Eden. Our story began in Eden, east of the garden. And here our story ends east of Eden. We've progressively moved further and further away from the presence of the Lord. So a question at the end of this narrative is how, how are we going to get back to Eden? How are we going to get back to Eden? I mean, we all, if we're going to be honest, apart from grace, find ourselves in the line of Cain, right? We, we find ourselves loving ourselves, being so inwardly focused being so concerned about ourselves and not wanting to love our neighbor as ourself, definitely not wanting to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our state apart from grace. How are we going to be brought from darkness to light? How are we going to be brought back to Eden, as it were, which Revelation will tell us is even better. It's a garden city. How's that going to happen? Well, brothers and sisters, the way it's going to happen so we need a greater, older brother. We need a greater, older brother who's going to come out and instead of taking us out into a desolate place, a wilderness, and killing us, he's going to redeem us through his life, death, and resurrection. We need a greater, older brother who's going to save us. Not one who's going to kill us, but one who will save us. And if we just go back to Genesis 3.15, there's the hope of the seed to come, the seed of the woman. We know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great serpent crusher. If we're to go from being outside of God's presence, east of Eden, then we need our greater older brother to come find us and take us back home. And praise God. That the eternal Son of God condescended to us in flesh, in the incarnation, to live the life we should have lived, took on the punishment that we deserved, conquered sin and death in his resurrection, and is right now interceding on our behalf. Christ, our greater older brother, succeeded, hear me now, succeeded where Cain failed. He succeeded where Cain failed and has come to rescue us from our bondage to sin and death and to bring us home. He's our greater older brother. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 tells us that Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. And as we're conformed to his image, that's the purpose for which we were called and chosen. That we would be conformed to our greater older brother. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 through 13 tell us about how Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in the assembly of God. The grace of God in Christ our Lord brings us back into the family of God. So I want you to see how Christ is a greater, a greater older brother than Cain. We talk about types and antitypes. There are things that foreshadow the coming of Christ. Well, here Cain foreshadows the coming of Christ, not because of what he did, but because of what he failed to do. Christ offered himself. 
Here are the ways that Christ is better than Cain. Christ offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice in perfect faith and perfect obedience. Rather than bringing some other offering, Christ brings himself and he does so from a posture of perfect faith and perfect obedience. We see that perfect faith as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane being pressed down and he submits to his Father's will. In heaven, the Messiah's will, submitting perfectly to God's will. There's perfect faith and there's perfect obedience as he goes to the cross. Perfect obedience. Christ succeeds where Cain fails. Christ overcomes where Cain does not. Christ overcame sin and temptation. Rather than failing, Christ overcomes sin and temptation. He controls his anger in all righteousness. We see Christ being righteously angry in the gospel accounts, but it does not produce sinful acts like it did in the life of Cain. He controls his anger in all righteousness. And he was tempted just as we are, yet he was without sin, Hebrews chapter 4 would tell us. Christ's shed blood speaks a better word than that of Abel's blood. Where Abel's blood cries out for justice, Christ's blood cries out for grace. He procured justice and he speaks a word of grace through his blood. Brothers and sisters, Christ was taken outside of Jerusalem. He was led east so that we might be led west. He was taken outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified, where he took our curse and punishment, where he died, where he was buried, and where he conquered sin and death in his resurrection so that we might be brought back from the far country and to the house of God as children of God. The parable of the prodigal son was mentioned last week, and I just want to conclude here with the parable of the prodigal son, and seeing how the older brother, as he pouts outside the celebratory gathering that the father had as the younger son has come back, the response of the older brother would have been, go out to the far country and bring your brother back. And he's outside in the parable of the prodigal son pouting when the brother comes back. We don't have an older brother who goes outside and pouts. We have an older brother who's gone outside, outside of the city, east of Jerusalem, east of Eden, to take the punishment, to die the death we deserve to die. He came to rescue us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. He is our greater older brother. He is far greater than Cain. He brings us back from a far country, not by, not by sending letters to us, but by coming to us and saving us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 reminds us sin's impact is great. God's mercy and grace are greater still. For the people of Israel, they hear that and they're looking to the promised land. 
For us today, we see God has been faithful to fulfill his promises and will one day come back to redeem all of those who are his through Christ. And he will consummate his kingdom where Christ will rule as our greater older brother, as king forever and ever and ever. And we will be brought into a perfect kingdom that will have no end. We will have been brought from the east to the west as we return to our great God through Christ. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you hear the reality of this passage and I pray that it weighs heavily upon you as we look to its perfect fulfillment in Christ our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how in Christ all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And Lord, we desperately need to hear that today. We desperately need to hear that unlike Cain, Christ has conquered. Unlike Cain, who kills, Christ gives life. Unlike Cain, who is so inwardly focused, Christ is not inwardly focused, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He saved an innumerable host of brothers and sisters. We desperately need to hear that gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who remind ourselves of the gospel daily, especially now daily. Help us to love one another well as we display love for the body. Will we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself? Will we love the body of life point? Will we love the body of Christ far and wide for your glory in this day and age, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna close this up with a doxology and I, I love this doxology from the book of Jude. Doxologies are meant to sing praises back unto the Lord and I just wanna close with the doxology, Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory and majesty and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. I love you, Life Point. Grace and peace be with you.